This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We know that hyperlipidemia is one of the major risk factors for cardiovascular disease, and we actually have very effective treatment for elevated lipids. It's been proven to be effective in reducing the complications of cardiovascular disease, and overall, it's actually quite well tolerated. Yet it's estimated that over 50% of the population in the United States have elevated LDL cholesterols, and less than 35% of those patients are adequately managed. So why is this such a common condition, and why aren't we doing a better job at managing this major public health problem? We'll be discussing hyperlipidemia and its management with Dr. Monique Freund, a cardiologist in the Department of Cardiovascular Disease at the Mayo Clinic. Monique, welcome. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, this is a fun topic because I see a lot of this. It's, it's, it's probably present in at least half of my patients, uh, given who I see. So I'm very interested in some of your answers to the questions I've come up with. I guess the place I'd like to start is if we look at the three major components of lipids, you know, the elevated LDL cholesterol, low HDL cholesterol, elevated triglycerides, how would you place the relative importance of those three? That's an excellent question. And I think it's something that we as physicians kind of have to walk our patients through as we have these shared decision-making conversations. So I would say the way to rank them would be LDL cholesterol would be at the top. That's the one that we have the most robust data historically, primary, secondary prevention data, and it's a primary target for therapeutic interventions. We know that elevated LDL cholesterol is a direct causative factor for cardiovascular disease and events. And we do also know that lowering the LDL lowers MI risk probably more than the other things such as stroke, et cetera. There's also data that LDL cholesterol lowering also reduces cardiovascular disease mortality. So really demonstrable benefits in terms of some of the adverse outcomes that is the thing that we are concerned about reducing. The other two elevated triglycerides and low HDL levels are less robustly described in terms of a direct causal effect with cardiovascular disease and events. What we do know is that an elevated triglyceride level is associated with cardiovascular disease, but a causal relationship has not really been clearly established. And some investigators even and studies suggest that when we adjust for other factors of the metabolic syndrome, meaning significantly overweight or reduced uh, physical activity, et cetera, highway circumference, elevated blood pressure, that relationship sometimes goes away. So it's not really clear. And if the interventions that we're doing are having an effect through the effect on LDL cholesterol lowering. As for low HDL, that we also know has an inverse relationship. So higher HDL in general reduces cardiovascular disease and events. And it is known to be an independent predictor of events, but a causality relationship, again, has not been strongly described. And as we were discussing earlier, not really sure because there are subclasses of HDL. 
So some people with a very high HDL, it's possible, depending on their makeup, that that itself may be atherogenic versus other types, larger particles could be protective. So in short, I think the, the main area of focus, which is encapsulated in some of the risk calculations that we do, they really do focus on LDL. And the most commonly used one, the ASCVD risk calculator, also does include HDL as one of those that we incorporate as we're thinking about defining someone's risk. Well, that's probably fortunate too, because at least in terms of treatment options, we have the most available for uh, lowering LDL cholesterol. Exactly. I mean, it's just amazing how uh, much they can drop the LDL cholesterol. When I have patients who have uh, an LDL cholesterol, many are resistant to starting a statin. And in most cases, I would give them a chance to lower it with lifestyle changes before starting pharmacologic therapy. So what should we tell patients they can do to lower LDL cholesterol without medications? I think that's very important. You know, we should always have a shared decision-making approach. It's not just, you know, we say, here, here's a pill, see you in however long with another test. I think though, before we talk about non-pharmacologic measures, it might be useful to find out what some of the hesitancy may be. Everybody seems to, you know, know someone that has some terrible adverse effect with a statin, or they think that they do. And so just understanding what their own hesitancy is and whether they themselves have experienced something, sometimes that discussion can be quite fruitful. However, regardless of what direction you take, it is important that we also do lifestyle modification because this in addition to or instead of pharmacotherapy can be quite helpful. So the diet that or diets that we have the most robust data in terms of reducing cardiovascular risk and events is a Mediterranean diet. So one that is rich in fruit and vegetables, this particular one high in olive oil, pretty minimal amounts of um, red meat and moderate alcohol intake. And that's sort of similar to what's in the, the DASH diet, the American version. Other things that can be done that can be very, very useful, increasing soluble fiber intake, which you will get with the fruit and vegetables, but something like oatmeal, reducing that amount of cholesterol that's absorbed from the intestines, knowing that our cholesterol is a combination of what we make plus what we eat. Also increasing fatty fish intake, things like salmon, mackerel, sardines, those sorts of things and also moderating the amount of alcohol that we have. So one unit a day for a lady and two for men per day. And I always tell my patients, you can't skip a few days and make it up on the weekend (laughs) because I get that asked that quite often. Other things, weight loss, paramount. I think a lot of patients find it somewhat intimidating because what do you do? You have a patient who is a hundred pounds overweight they're going to tell you they're never going to be the weight that they were in high school. But the data does show us that pretty modest weight loss can have tremendous impact, you know, just five to 10% of your current weight. And I think, you know, I tell my patients, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, no pun intended. (laughs) But, you know, they don't need to get back to their high school weight, just modest reductions can go, um, there's an incremental benefit. So over-the-counter supplements, soluble fiber can be purchased. I know patients will often ask about fish oil. 
There was recently, just about two weeks ago, a new expert consensus document, particularly focused on triglycerides. And that one has gone on to emphasize more of the prescription strength fish oils versus what you purchase over the counter for a variety of reasons. Potency, reproducibility in terms of verifying, you know, what's actually in it, et cetera. But there is also a reasonable utility for that. But the impact on the LDL cholesterol specifically for that is modest. How about HDL? I've had some patients with pretty good results lowering LDL with lifestyle changes. HDL is a bit tougher to increase. So what works for that? HDL, you know, of, of all of the um, components of the lipid panel, that's the hardest one to move. And I, I really pretty much tell my patients, don't worry about that one, <laughs> because you'll probably feel disappointed, you know, you're working so hard and it's not moving. Just to put it in relative context, if you take a statin, it's only going to increase your HDL by about 5%. It's pretty small, but not to say that there aren't other benefits on your lipid panel and the benefits on cardiovascular disease and events. So moderating alcohol intake, it's not recommended that if one is abstinent completely that you start drinking alcohol just for this, but moderate alcohol intake does have some HDL increasing effect, exercise as well, and the usual weight loss. But again, the effect is going to be modest. I would not use that as a measure, like something that the patient is going to look at to say, okay, I'm doing well or I'm not with my efforts, because you'd be a bit disappointed. Seems the patients I've had the most success in raising their HDL have been ones who start some type of aerobic exercise program and are able to get their aerobic exercise at least 30 minutes, maybe five times a week. And there's been some that have been able to raise their HDL with that, but you're right. Mm -hmm. It's, it's tough to do. Yes. And in the past, you know, about, uh, I would say maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was pretty much a push to get pharmacotherapy that we could increase the HDL. And those trials, one was stopped because of harm. They found increased cardiovascular events, which is so odd. <laughs> there was some concern that maybe it was increasing hypertension and others have been stopped due to futility. So we really don't have a good pharmacotherapy or any at the moment for increasing HDL safely or in a useful manner. You sort of alluded to this earlier, but the patients, and they're usually females, at least that I've seen, that have an ultra high HDL, you know, 120, 140, but you're saying maybe that's not all good stuff. It's unclear. The, the information is mixed. So there are two subclasses of HDL. One is HDL2, which is a larger, more buoyant particle thought to be less atherogenic or plaque producing. And then HDL3, which is a smaller, denser particle that may be more atherogenic. In the past, we used to actually do NMR subparticle analyses, but that has seemed to have fallen out of clinical use, probably still no more in the research arena, if at all. There's some data that these very high HDL levels are seen in some populations that are associated with polymorphisms that are themselves associated with longevity. So I don't think we, we know a clear answer on that, whether it's a good or bad thing. But like you alluded to, it's often ladies generally they're healthy if you think of yeah. it or they, they usually look younger for their age looking you know quite healthy 
And so when I see that in a lipid panel, I often think of it in a way that it may be protective, but not to be, to have your alert down. You still want to focus on that LDL if it's also unusually high. Right. I guess I have not seen any with a very high HDL with premature coronary disease. So mm -hmm. it's hard to know. It is. Well, well how about triglycerides? Those are fairly adjustable with, uh, I think, especially with diet and weight loss. Yes. I think your, your biggest bang for your buck in terms of lifestyle modification is going to be with your triglycerides. That can be so gratifying in terms of changing that number. So the recent guidelines that came out last month in terms of a definition for elevation, the definition of mild to moderate elevation is a fasting triglyceride between 150 and 499. So it's actually a lot higher than many of us will see. I think you look at the lipid panel and you see that red number, you know, like, oh, it's high. But really, they still consider like up to 499 to be moderate and severe above 500. So diet, specifically reducing processed carbohydrates and added sugars, reading food labels, eating more foods that have lower glycemic index, you know, not less simple carbohydrates and more complex carbs, again, also with more fiber. Dietary intervention with triglycerides can drop them by up to 70, 70%. So if you, what that also says is that's actually pretty good. You don't necessarily have to have the, the fight about the pills <laughs> because diet can really do that. And specifically in conjunction with modest weight loss, again, only five to 10%, you can hit that up to 70% number. That's really a low hanging fruit, you know, for something you can do that's, that's non-pharmacologic that you right. can get quite a substantial improvement. Yep, I agree. Fish oil supplements, again, as I had explained earlier, we do now have two prescription type of fish oils um, available. One is a purified EPA. It's marketed as Vasipa. And there's another, which is a mixture of mainly EPA and DHA, which is Lovaz Lovaza, I'm sorry. And those can reduce by 20 or 40%. So if you think about it, like a prescription will get you under half but lifestyle can get you 70%. In my opinion, you know, lifestyle is the way to go. But in select appropriate patients, pharmacotherapy is available. So I think we both agree that we would try lifestyle changes first in our patients. And then if they are still not optimally controlled, we would consider pharmacologic therapy. And in most cases, this is going to be one of several statins that are available. So what criteria do we use to determine when a patient should start a statin? That's a good question. So I think the first step is, is really defining what somebody's risk of cardiovascular disease or atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease is. In the United States, and also based on the American College of Cardiology, there is what used to be called a pooled cohort calculator. In simple terms, they looked back at the statin data, updated it with more contemporaneous uh, trials that included, for example, more non-Caucasian subjects, women, et cetera, and made a new risk estimator. And you can find that online quite easily if you just type in ASCBD risk, or even if you just put what's my heart risk, you should probably get to it. And there's also an app you can put on your phone. 
And there are other risk calculators as well. There's a MESA score, there's a renal score. In Europe, there's a SCORE score. <laughs> but we have calculators that can be done that can match you to you know, the relative population so you can see your own risk. Are you low, intermediate, or high? Not something you have to do on your own, but some patients do want to do that. And who gets or who is it recommended should have a statin? In my uh, simple terms, I'd say who gets to go and doesn't collect $200 like straight away if your LDL is over 190 or if you're diabetic or if you've had an event. So to clarify, what are we trying to prevent? There are two kinds of prevention. Primary means you actually don't have the disease or events as yet. You're preventing something from happening that hasn't. And then secondary prevention, which is you already have disease or have had an event, a heart attack, stroke, peripheral arterial disease. So I think it's also important to clarify that. And so all patients who already have the disease or have had an event, a statin is recommended. Is there a risk threshold in, in primary prevention? Yes, there is. So the most recent guidelines we have in the U.S. are from 2018. And so what they now consider high risk is if that score is above or equal to 20%. It's interesting the way that the guidelines had, have gone is to really emphasize that shared decision-making. It doesn't actually just point you down and say statin. It says discuss with your physician and come to a mutual agreement about what you'll do. Side effects, cost, compliance, the values of your patient, etc., need to be considered. But the strongest recommendation is with this high-risk group. In the intermediate group, there are certain things to be considered that are considered like risk enhancers in where you may lean more toward pharmacotherapy. For example, they have chronic kidney disease, high triglycerides, significantly overweight, family history, things like that, certain markers that can lean you more towards that. And generally not recommended in that low risk group, which is a risk that calculates under 5%. Can you briefly touch on how the statins actually work? Sure. I think for a drug that we use so much, it's something we really should focus on. So simply put, the statins inhibit an enzyme called HMG coenzyme A reductase. Basically, that's an enzyme involved in synthesis or manufacture of cholesterol in our liver. And by inhibiting that enzyme, there's less cholesterol available. And so what the cell does in response to that is to upregulate the LDL receptor, basically to say, hey, I'm low on cholesterol, pull more out of the circulation through the receptor. Some other mechanisms have to do with reducing manufacture of some of the substances that are required to make cholesterol. But the end result is that the serum LDL cholesterol goes down. And on average, depending on the statin, it can be 30 to 60% or so. So in general, they lower LDL cholesterol. You mentioned they have you know, minimal effect on raising HDL and maybe mm -hmm. a little bit lowering triglycerides. But is there a secondary benefit from the statins in addition to just lowering LDL? Yes, there is. They're not, the mechanisms are not well understood. A word that you'll often see when you look this up is pleiotropic meaning multiple benefits in different systems. So some people think it may have to do with reversing dysfunction of the endothelium. There may be reduced clotting, which we know is a factor in cardiovascular effect. 
events, I'm sorry. They also may have some mechanisms of stabilizing plaque. And there are some studies, not very many though, that potential plaque regression, but that's minor. It's mainly with stabilizing, I'm sorry, what you already have. Mm -hmm. There are a significant number of patients who are reluctant to take a statin and they are worried about potential adverse effects. Now, I guess in my experience, I'm amazed that they are so well tolerated, but there are some potential adverse effects. Why don't review those with us, if you would? Oh, certainly. As I said, I think the biggest hesitancy I hear in my own practice is concern about side effects followed by some people who just don't want to take a pharmacotherapy. In general, when you look at actual randomized studies, the reports of these side effects are minimal, somewhere in the 1% to 5% range. Although in clinical practice, you'd think, geez, a much bigger number. I'd say the com- most commonly reported is statin-associated muscle symptoms, feeling achy, sore, stiff, Sometimes people feel like they have a flu, just generalized body aches. And it can be so challenging because who doesn't have aches and pains? (laughs) And so it will often be ascribed to the statin, but may not necessarily be so. Because as you and I have probably experienced, sometimes you stop the statin and nothing happens to the myalgias. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you re-challenge and the symptoms they had before are gone at the same or lesser dose. So it's a, it's a bit tricky. Another is concern about memory change. There isn't any clear data that statins actually cause dementia. In fact, there is recent data that suggests perhaps it may be protective because vascular dementia is increasing and by reducing plaque in the brain, it may actually be protective. But there are some patients who have memory disturbance. I've had a few. And I basically will, will stop the statin and see what happens. Sometimes I've done neurocognitive testing to see if it is truly that, you know. And it, again, it's difficult to tell because patients are getting older and they do have risk factors for cognitive impairment. But that's probably the most robust. There's also a small risk of developing diabetes. And I think the data is pretty convincing on that in terms of a small potential risk of increasing your risk of diabetes. But what they have seen is that it's the same patients who would have probably become diabetic anyway. And the onset of the diabetes, depending on where you look, is probably just a month or so earlier than you would have without the statin. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, it's, I always tell my patients, you have that scale, you have your risk and you have your benefit. Because if you become diabetic, then your CBD risk, it escalates so much higher and so it, it, it seems to be that the benefit would outweigh that small potential. Yeah. Now, I have seen the statins cause some elevation of liver enzymes, but my understanding is true hepatic injury with these medications is extremely rare if, if it happens at all. Is that the case? That is actually the case. I was trying to find a figure for that exact number. And all I could come up with from the ACC just says rare is vanishingly small. It didn't even give you a percentage number. In terms of transaminase elevation, they just list as infrequent. And you can use a statin up to, you know, three times the upper limit of normal. And I have several patients like that. I think many of them have steatohepatosis and they need to lose weight, you know? So I don't think the statin is, is causative. I think the most common uh, adverse effect we see with the statins is the myalgias. And mm-hmm. if we see that, 
does that mean they're intolerant of all of the statins? Can we try something else, a different statin? Absolutely. The statins vary in terms of potency, how strong they are, as well as whether they're fat or water soluble. And so what I will often do, and other lipid experts will do this, is to use a smaller dose of a more potent statin. And if they were, for example, on something lipophilic or fat soluble, I'll switch to something hydrophilic. For example, rosuvastatin is probably one of my favorites. I'll use literally a tiny amount, five milligrams. I also facilitate and encourage patient autonomy. I basically say, try to work your way up to every day, but start once a week. If this week goes well, do twice a week and so on. Because we have data that shows, you know, three times a week dosing can be reasonably effective. It's almost like you just need some in the pond. (laughs) but no, it's not necessarily a class effect. I think patients will often say, nope, I can't tolerate a statin. That's it. And they close the door and you'd see it in the chart, statins, don't use them. But it's really worthwhile for the provider to say, okay, which one did you use and what dose was it? It's a bit painful, but we have medical records. Now you can dig through and kind of sort that out. Yeah, I have had a number of patients who were really pretty severely statin intolerant, but even you know, like a half of a five milligram rosuvastatin a couple of times a week, mm-hmm. uh, you don't reach your goal, but it may be enough to lower their LDL from say, you know, 170 to 110. Um, yes. And that's still, that's still beneficial. It is. And I think when people are working with you, they also are doing lifestyle modifications. You know, we see it all the time. You get these improvements that exceed what you know, the mechanistic outcome that you're expecting. So they start to eat better and they do start to exercise. And then, you know, they may then need an adjunctive non-statin agent with that low dose and they can go a pretty long way and accomplish their goal. Let's talk just a little bit about that other agent. Um, I know azetamide has been added to statins at times and occasionally used when we have a truly statin intolerant patient. Uh, When is azetamide indicated? So azetamide is, it reduces how much cholesterol we absorb from our intestines and it can give you a lowering of about 25% or so. And so they're indicated if your patient is on the maximally tolerated statin and not accomplishing that goal. So it's an adjunctive add-on therapy. And how about the fibrates? They seem to go up and down in terms of their popularity. Yeah, they're down now. (laughs) I missed that one. No, not not down in the sense of you really have to search. So it's like one sentence, like maybe considered in the Mm -hmm. severe refractory hypertriglyceridemia. I remember these are the over 500s. Honestly, I can't even think of a patient I have like that, that I wouldn't have been doing something else. Mm -hmm. Because I think the reason for it is the outcome data, we don't have it. I think there are like two older trials with just fibrate monotherapy that showed reductions in events. And then the rest is in addition to statin therapy. So I think that's probably why they've fallen out of favor. But I do have a few patients. They They often will come to me on it already. And um, phenofibrate is preferred, simpler dosing and um, less drug interaction, particularly with the statins. And finally, the newest kid on the block, although it's, I guess, not all that new anymore, the PCSK9 mm-hmm. inhibitors. When do we use or when do we consider those? So those agents are injectable. They're monoclonal antibodies 
to keep it simple, they basically improve how you recirculate LDL by inhibiting an inhibitor of the receptor. And those can have profound reductions, about 60% or so, and can often be combined with a statin. When are they indicated? Again, you're on the maximally tolerated statin plus azetamibe and not making a goal. Another is patients who are absolutely statin intolerant. And I have a substantial number of those that you really done it all two times a week, half the pill, et cetera, et cetera. And they're incapacitated. Also, they're indicated in familial hyperlipidemia because that population really has a very high cardiovascular risk. But they were not studies as monotherapy. They, those studies were all done in addition to statins. Well, we've been discussing hyperlipidemia and its management with Dr. Monique Freund, a general cardiologist at the Mayo Clinic. Monique, it has been great talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you so much for having me. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. Mm -hmm.